Hey guys, before we get started, I wanted to mention that the Cork Report podcast is sponsored by our friends at Petrea Plus, a company that wants you to rethink your oak to showcase your fruit instead of your barrel program. Need high quality French oak barrels? Petrea Plus works with Tonellerie Caduce Barrels. Interested in the benefits of both oak and stainless steel? They have tightened hybrid barrels for that. Want to bring some oak flavor to your wine, beer, or cider without the expense? Check out Wine Sticks Barrel Alternatives. Everything Petrea Plus offers has been handpicked with cool and cold climate wine styles in mind. Learn more at PetreaPlus.com. That's PetreaPlus.com. And since you might not be sure how to spell that, that is P-E-T-R-A-E-A Plus.com. Shut up and sit down. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Cork Report Podcast. My name is Lan Thompson, and I'm joined here by... And, um, yeah, so we are finally doing this. I know we've been teasing it on social media for a while. Um, Carly, you can go off mute. Okay. And, um, yeah, we should say off the top, uh, we're just figuring this out. We're a couple writers trying to do this podcast thing. So be patient with us. Hopefully over time, we'll get better at it. Um, real quick, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Lyon Thompson. I'm the founder of The Cork Report, which is a website dedicated to finding the interesting people, places, and wines from across North America, just not our friends on the West Coast. Um, my co-host, as you just heard, is my longtime friend, Carlo DeVito, who recently joined the Cork Report as our first ever editor-at-large. Um, he's also a blogger, author, book publisher. I'll let him talk about himself in a minute. Um, he's been writing about East Coast wines for as long as anyone I know. Um, of course, doing something for a long time doesn't necessarily mean you're good at it, but we'll save that for another podcast. Uh, Carlo, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Uh, yes, hi. Len, thank you, you ignorant slut. Uh, yes, so I have the East Coast Wine, and I also uh, edit Wine, Beers, and Spares books, and I do uh, my own books as well, and I own the Hudson Chatham Winery. Yeah, that's one thing we should definitely mention. Uh, Carlo is a winery owner, so he brings a unique perspective that the average writer or blogger absolutely does not have. Um, yeah, so for those of you who know both of us, you know, we, um, have a unique type of friendship. We like to give each other a hard time. So definitely expect some of that in the podcast. Um, we've been, been knocking around ideas for what we want to do with this, but we're going to just try a few things tonight and see how it goes. Uh, please let us know what you like, what you don't like, but, um, before we dive in, Carlo, what's in your glass tonight, my friend? I have two wines tonight. I've got the Waters Crest Cabernet Franc 2013 from Long Island. And then I finished off my meal with the Unionville Vineyards Port from uh, New Jersey. I know those wines pretty well. Delicious. I'm actually sipping on Chardonnay tonight, if you can believe it. Holy shit. Um, as you as you know, 
I've been a little hard on East Coast Chardonnay over the years. Not you. Um, actually, all, I know. Actually, all domestic Chardonnay. But um, over the past year, I've been given some extra some extra attention, you know, giving him a chance again. And uh, I've actually found quite a few that I've enjoyed. Tonight I'm drinking the 2014 Chardonnay from Osmo Wines. A uh, fairly new producer in the Finger Lakes. Uh, it spent 10 months in large format oak. So it has a little barrel footprint, but the fruit's really forward. It's got some earthy and mineral things going on. Great acid, long finish. I'm actually enjoying it way more than I expected. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so yeah, so let's just dive in. Um, I think in future episodes, we're going to have guests or we'll pre-record some things just because it's hard enough for Carlo and I to schedule recording. Um, but one thing we wanted to dive into tonight is the concept of signature varieties. Um, as we know, a lot of regions, especially those that are just emerging or maybe even a little bit further along in their life cycle, they sometimes choose a grape to um, plant a flag and say, hey, this is what we do best. This is why. So we just wanted to cover that because you and I have talked about that probably dozens of times without being recorded. And uh, I know this is something you feel strongly about. So why don't you kick us off? Uh, this is one of my most uh, my biggest pet peeves in the wine industry. Uh, there are only a few ris- uh, um, regions in the country or in the world that have actually pulled off a single grape region. And I think this is the, uh, wow, I'm trying to be nice, uh, the biggest bunch of crap that I know of. Uh, there's no region that only grows one kind of grape. Uh, other than Burgundy, no other region in the world has really pulled this off. And I just don't see where this is a good marketing point. I think this is something that's designed for lazy wine writers who need an easy first line to write about a region, and I, I've never seen it really work. I loathe it. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, I, I used to be fully on where you are. I think um, I understand it. You know, I have a marketing background in my day job, so I understand why they would do it. Um, I do agree with you, though. It's largely a marketing apparatus. Um, just let me give you a couple examples, and just let me think. Let me t- tell me what you think. What, what you think about them? Um, so close to both of us, the Finger Lakes. They have really made a big push over the past, you know, ten years for Riesling, and obviously Riesling can be incredible. And it's really worked for them. Um, they're getting a lot of attention from big media, sommeliers. Um, I know that we've seen some stories lately where Riesling's been, it's been claimed that Riesling's still maligned. I don't agree with that. But, you know, so so to someone points at the Finger Lakes and says, hey, but the Riesling thing has worked for them, you know, do you think it's worked? You know, as a winery owner and someone involved in a region that deserves more attention, could you see something like that happening in the Hudson Valley, maybe around Cabernet Franc or Saval? I, I know you love Saval. Um, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do Saval. Uh, no. So here's my thoughts. No, number one, I think the people who put together the whole Riesling program in the 
Finger Lakes deserve a lot of credit because it helped bring the region to prominence. And there's no question that some of the best Rieslings in the world are made in the Finger Lakes. I think the biggest problem they face right now in the quality wine world is that they're making a lot of other good wines, but they're being dismissed by a lot of wine writers because they say, well, they do Riesling well, but they really haven't caught up with the rest of the stuff. And I think eventually that kind of thing boomerangs on you as you go forward or attempt to go forward. And I, I've seen uh, that happen in Santa Barbara, where they tried to claim that Pinot, cold climate Pinot, was their friend, was their, was their star. And the problem is when you go there, everybody's growing 20 other different varieties, and there's some excellent wines. But everybody's like, oh, cold climate Pinot, everything else maybe not so good yet. And it's crap. There's lots of good wines coming out of there. I think it I think it serves to confuse yeah. wine writers rather than making them work a little harder to understand what a region does. There, for example, in the Finger Lakes, there's some really good reds being made right now, and they're being dismissed because, oh, no, it's a Riesling region. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's all about depth, I think. So it's a great first hook for sommeliers or writers. Like, hey, we have this, this great, but you're absolutely right. You have to have that that next level, and you know, there's Cabernet Franc, there's Pinot, the Gewurztraminer in the Finger Lakes can be amazing. Absolutely, and there's some lovely Gamay Noirs. There's some great Leon Malot. There's some fabulous wines being made up there, and and yet I've heard a number of wine writers who don't know much about the region say, "Oh, they make great Riesling, but everything else maybe, maybe not," and that's not true. There's great wine being made up there. Right. Yeah, I mean, in the another example that I kind of point to as a misstep with the signature variety is Virginia when they had the big Viognier push. I mean, for me, that, sure, there's some great Viognier down there. One, I'm not sure people care about Viognier that much, like the general consumer. And I'm not sure what you think about this, because we actually haven't talked about this before, but... I find Virginia Viognier very up and down. Sure, there's some great ones, but a lot of them, not a lot of them, some of them get kind of flabby, high alcohol, or they beat the shit out of it with oak, um, which you know I don't like in any grape. But No, it's a lot. And it's interesting. They seem, I mean, they seem to have backed off that Viognier push. You know, I don't really hear about it. I don't know if you do. And when I was down there, I guess a couple springs ago for the Virginia Wine Summit, they weren't pushing it at all anymore. And actually, it seemed like Petit Verdot was one of the things they were starting to push. Um, uh, they, they're, they're a complicated white region because it gets very hot there and they're trying not to make Chardonnay. So they put the V&A thing and they put Petit Mansang. And really what they make are some very big uh, aromatic whites. But uh, the one worry you have is that it can get very flabby if it's not managed in the vineyard properly or if it's harvested too late, you're chasing that sugar, and the next thing you know, you have this big, heavy wine rather than something that's light and aromatic and uh, that just explodes out of the glass. Yeah, I mean, one of the best ones I tasted the last time I was down there was from Keswick, and it was their private reserve or a state reserve, whatever the next level up was, and what they do is they pick some of the grapes early for acid. And then a few weeks later, they pick for the really strong Viognier, honeysuckle, right. peach, you know, the varietal character. 
And I thought that worked well, but I don't think that's that common. It's, it's a better way um, to do it, in my opinion, because I think you want both those things you just talked about. You want some of that acidity that will keep the wine fresh and honest, but you want some of that other bigger flavor so that it helps come through. And I think that's a struggle that they're still experimenting with. But I think there's some wonderful ones, but I think there are some disappointments as you go through. Yeah. And um, one other region I want to talk about. And Vignette, right, my and by the way, Vignette is one of my favorite whites, that and Gewürztraminer. So I'm really in that realm. Sure. No, no, I agree with you. Like, I, I, you know, I drink a lot of Riesling, but when you want something with a little added richness, a little more weight um, without, without leaning into the residual sugar area, uh, Viognier is great. Um, let's talk I think the other thing about Viognier in, in defense of Virginia is they went that way because they didn't want to go the Chardonnay route. I mean, it's just it's probably one of the most overgrown grapes in the United States at this point. Oh, you know how I feel about that. But let me ask you this. <laughs> uh, I, is that big tanker behind your house, that's not all filled with Chardonnay? It's, it's all barrel fermented Chardonnay, yes. No, but let me ask you this. So over the past six to 12 months, have you had more good and great Virginia Chardonnay or more good and great Virginia Viognier? Ooh, that's a very good question. Uh, I have to say my 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 palate is and my my um, uh, what do you call it? My my preference is definitely toward the Viognier. But I have to say, up and down the East Coast, from New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and and Virginia, I've had better Chardonnays. On, on whole. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I would even say in Virginia, you know, you know how much I hate Chardonnay as a overall category, but I've had some really, really nice ones from Virginia over the past, you know, six to 12 months. Um, I think one of the best kept secrets on the East Coast is that we have fabulous Chardonnay. It's not the big flabby, over sweet crap that you can find from other regions, but I find that it's uh, usually much lighter, uh, has much more vibrancy, and uh, is really good stuff. So I, I just find that the Chardonnay is not what people think it is from other regions. No, I agree with you with the producers who let the Chardonnay speak for itself. There's, you know, as well as I do, there's a shit ton of over oak Chardonnay on the East Coast. Um, it's kind of, it's definitely getting better. And I think, I think there's a lot of regions up and down the East Coast that are not just with Chardonnay, with a lot of grapes are starting to let the grapes speak for themselves and allowing, you know, I don't want to throw out the terroir word, but, you know, they're letting the grapes that they're growing speak as opposed to beating the shit out of it with oak. Um, the same thing is true for Cabernet Sauvignon. Well, the reason people use oak, there's two reasons you use oak, okay? One is to hide flaws, and the other one is you're making really big wines, and you need wood that's going to stand up to those wines. So if you're making a big Chardonnay in California or a big Cabernet Sauvignon in California, you need that big oak to stand up to that wine. We don't make those same kind of wines here on the East Coast, so when you try to beat it up with that oak, Unfortunately, I think it often overpowers what's going on. And I think it's uh, taken a while for uh, um, uh, the East Coast wineries to kind of learn how much oak they could put in without overpowering the wine. And it's not an easy thing to learn. It takes a little bit of time. Yeah, I mean, I think I would argue that there's an, a third reason why. I think 
at least initially when wineries, you know, are first coming on board and they're, they're, they're worried about selling their wine, they make wines that they think people want and maybe wines that people do still want. We all, we all know that Oak Chardonnay is still a very important and lucrative category. So I think there's an, there's an added reason why you would do it. Um, you know, but we should definitely talk about Oak on a future episode. You know, it's something I feel strongly about. Yeah. I mean, I, I can say to you that when we first started, I couldn't wait. I went out and I bought a, a brand new French oak barrel and I took my wine, I put it in there and I was all excited. We were going to make this big oaky red wine. And when it came out, it so overpowered the wine that it tasted like a dining room set. And it was just awful. Yeah. So it's something that people learn to, to do over a period of time. You have to learn what your vineyard gives you and then you have to figure out how much oak you can add and, and what you need to throttle back or not. And it's, it's a very complicated thing to figure out. No, I agree with you 100%. And um, we've kind of veered off from the variety discussion, but let's, before we move on to our next segment, let's talk about Long Island Merlot for a minute. So, you know, Merlot's a much maligned, haha, that's a little inside joke, given the Riesling maligned thing, but it's interesting, you know, Merlot's the most planted red grape here, eight out of 10 years, and as climate changes, um, maybe even nine out of 10 years, it ripens well here with good balanced chemistry, good flavors, Um, and there's no doubt that Long Island makes great Merlot, but it's interesting. So over the past six months, I've been asking every Long Island winemaker I talked to what they would plant if they were planting a vineyard anew. Ten, I said, I say 10 acres. Tell me what the breakdown is. Um, I've asked this of, I don't know, maybe half the winemakers here and not a single one has mentioned Merlot. Now, it's possible that they're thinking in their head, you know, I can buy this. It's already planted somewhere else, so I don't need it in my vineyard. So there's that caveat. But I don't think I don't think that the future of Long Island Mer- is going to be Merlot anymore. I, I did think it was at one point. Um, I think that consumers and writers and sommeliers and I think everyone's much more excited about other things right now. I think now that could just what, 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 what reds do you think are the, the the wines that you think they would plant instead of Merlot? Well, here's the question: Does it have to be a red grape? Because well, assuming you're sticking in the red category since you mentioned Merlot. Well, sure, but that's because that's what it is today. You know, the the grapes that keep come keep coming up when I ask that question are things like Albarino or more Sauvignon Blanc because Sauvignon Blanc has been great here. But there's not as much in it in the ground as you might think. Um, well, my, my question is, is look, the rosé is a huge, huge category in Long Island. And uh, you've got a huge summer crowd who quaffs a lot of Long Island wine. I would say that a large portion of the wine that's locally maybe drunk between Memorial Day and like maybe end of September. And so if you're drinking in that period in Long Island, it's hot. And you want something cool and refreshing. So you're looking for a rosé or a white. So a big, heavy Merlot is not going to be your biggest seller in the hot, in the biggest portion of your season. You know, for wineries that are trying to make a living selling wine direct to their consumers, 
the you know in the middle of July and August, the, how many people want a big ugly Merlot? Uh, and I don't mean that pejorative sense. I'm just saying how many people want a big ugly red at that time of year? And, and, and Long Island has changed their model, right? Originally, they wanted to do all this distribution, and now they're selling stuff. Oh, no, we're going to sell it all out of the tasting room. Well, that's how we you know, uh, realize our profits, et cetera. So now you have to change your model as you decide to do that. Yeah, I mean, that's something we'll talk about in a future episode, too, This the, the different models that are that we're seeing on the East Coast. Um, I mean, as far as... The other thing that brings to mind, if I may interject one more time, is that uh, one of the about Merlot, for example, is that Merlot... Is uh, there's some lovely Merlots coming out of Long Island. There's some lovely Cab Francs coming out of Long Island. But the North Fork, I should say, not to piss people off. But the uh, point I was going to make is that in that region, I think you're better off making blends. My favorite Merlots and my favorite Cab Francs from the region aren't 100%. They usually have uh, 10, 20, 20% of something else blended into them. And I think that's relatively true for you too, no? No, absolutely true. Um, there's very few 100% variety labeled that I that I find compelling. Um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. What's interesting is um, the main red grapes that do get mentioned um, is Cabernet Franc has been mentioned several times. Um, Pinot, but Pinot for sparkling, not for red wine. And, um, and Malbec, which has really shown some interesting some interesting things here on Long Island. There's not a lot here, but it, um... I have to tell you, as a winemaker who's bought Merlot uh, Malbec in the past, it's the one grape everybody wants out of Long Island, and they can't plant enough right now. Uh, I, if I had Merlot, right. I'd rip out a third of it and put it in, in Malbec. It grows beautifully out there. You get really beautiful flavors out of it, and it's a grape that everybody wants. And, uh, you cannot get enough out of it. Yeah, let me ask you this, though. Do people want it because they're chasing the fact that Malbec is so big right now coming out of South America? Um, it's, it's, it's in your tasting room. I, I mean, we, we made enough to make about 75 to 100 cases, and I'm going to yeah. tell you that it sold out in about 60 days. I can't keep it in stuff. It flies. It, the customers want it. And it's the same thing with Pinot Blanc or Sauvignon Blanc. People want it, and it flies out of the door. Yeah, and how, how much did you charge for that Malbec, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, originally, it was an ungodly amount. It was like sixteen ninety five, and I went to shoot myself afterwards. Uh, we could have easily charged twenty four ninety five and still sold it. It's a, it's a yeah, great thing everybody wants. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing I find interesting with Long Island Malbec is because there's so little of it in the ground, you know, you know, wineries are making 50, 30, 100 cases of it. So they're charging 35, 40, even more. And I mean, people are buying it, but, you know, obviously you can get decent Malbec from Argentina for 15, 20 bucks. Oh, yeah. I went out to Argentina and Chile. You can get fantastic uh, Malbecs for less than half of that. Yeah. So let's um. So before we move on from the signature variety discussion, because I think we could talk about this for hours and just talk about different um, examples and where it's worked and where it hasn't worked. But I mean, and I think you agree with this, but it's more fun if we don't. Um, <laughs> it's really bad. We, we agree on this stuff. <laughs> I know we're going to have to find some stuff that we disagree on, like, Ugh. like save all Blanc. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Ovies have layers, um, men have you know, layers. Up and down the East Coast. <laughs> up and down the East Coast, you know, and I've had a few people here tell me this, some of the non-Merlot pushers, who, by the way, make good Merlot, um, they tell me that they think their diversity is their biggest strength. You know, you know, in America, we have the advantage you can be able to plant whatever we want, wherever we want, next to, to whatever we want. So you can have Chenin Blanc next to Cab Franc, next to Pinot, next to... And, you know, on Long Island, there's still a fairly narrow band of things that have been tried and have been successful. There's still experiments going on. But, you know, look at New Jersey as an example. You know, in the southern part where it's really well-drained soils, you got all the Bordeaux varieties, you know, right and red um, in the in the northern parts, you know, where we were, was that five months ago? Um, you got stuff like Gruner and Blaufrankisch and... And Syrah and Gewürztraminer. I mean, the amount of diversity in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania and New York uh, and Maryland, you know, there's, to, to me, the diversity is what is so compelling about, you know, wine in the East. You can find, you know, spanning from Virginia up through Vermont, you can find a style of wine for anybody. It's just a matter of knowing the producers, knowing the vintages where a wine's going to be made in the style that you prefer. Well, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the things that uh, Jim Treesize used to say, which I used to roll my eyes about, is that he would say, uh, diversity is, is our calling card. And I just used to, my head used to explode. But as I've gotten older and been in this business for a while, uh, he's absolutely right. And one of the things when you try to sell direct to the consumer, number one is a small winery. You need to have a certain diversity of portfolio for the people that walk into your door. And there, there just needs to be a portion of that. And on the other side of it, uh, you know, it's easy. To, there's, a, there's a lot of writers who will say, oh, they make too many wines. They don't make like one or two wines well. And I, I don't think that's actually true. I think there's some wonderful wineries that will make a, a half a dozen different varieties very, very well. Uh, you just have to be able to be open to that concept. These aren't big wineries. These are boutique wineries, and they need to have a portfolio that's going to appeal to the people that walk into their door. Yeah, I mean, that's a little – that's a slightly different kind of diversity. I'm not advocating – and I've been pretty vocal about this. You know, not every winery should try to have everyone – not have something for everyone. You know, I understand the pressure to do that. And if cellar door, you know – Every day is a wine festival is your business model. I get it. That's probably what you have to do. But, you know, thinking about the people who are trying to make the wines that are going to push our industry forward, I think, you know, hone in on what you can do great, what is distinctive, what is delicious. And, you know, you know, there's some, some good Riesling on Long Island, but if I want East Coast Riesling... I'm going to the Finger Lakes or I'm going to Galen Glen. You know, I'm not, I don't expect- See, but that's where you're wrong. Uh, Len, you ignorant slut. Uh, Bedell, I think, makes one of the best divertimeters in the entire state. Actually, in the Northeast. So, I agree with that. Uh, you're wrong there. No, I, that's, that's not, that's not, I'm not wrong on that. So, if you, if you think Bedell has something for everyone, that's not oh, true. No, no, they I don't, don't have sweet wine there. for everyone. 
I'm just saying that if you say there's, you're going to go to the Finger Lakes for Riesling, you don't have to. You know, I like the Finger Lakes Riesling, and I like some of their uh, other whites, like the Vermeer. They make a fabulous Vermeer up there. And the Traminet in uh, both of the Hudson Valley and the Finger Lakes is improving tremendously. And I know you're a Don't big fan. Don't talk to me that. about Traminet. The, the, <laughs> the vile that weed. You, uh, the vile weed. The <laughs> vile weed. vile weed is what's growing out of your ears. So the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that there are some wonderful conversion meters. There's a great conversion, a couple of great conversion meters in Connecticut, uh, believe it or not. Uh, Stonington Vineyard Water and Saltwater Farm make, uh, not Saltwater Farm, I'm sorry, Jonathan Edwards, make great conversion meter. So you, one has to be open-minded uh, to understand where you can also get some of these great wines. Sure. No, I think we agree about that. And then the only other thing I wanted to mention about the signature variety, signature variety question is... Look at a place like Minnesota or Wisconsin where they're working with grapes that haven't existed that long. So, you know, should Minnesota go ahead and say, hey, hey, we're Marquette? Or should they wait and see what, what the next grape is coming down the pike? I mean, people keep talking about Itasca, I think is how you say it. Um, yeah. I've had several winemakers tell me that it's going to be like that, their version of California Sauvignon Blanc. They're all very excited. Um you know, so in that instance, it's funny because I still like La Crescent and uh, Frontenac Gris more than I like the Ishta or Ishtar or however they pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> I I, uh, I think that those are really wonderful wines. They make bright, vibrant wines. They make great blends, and uh, I think that's uh, a misnomer. Do I think they should say we are Marquette country? No, absolutely not. I think, though, that the Minnesota varieties have been a tremendous addition to East Coast winemaking and U.S. winemaking in, uh, in general. No, I think we agree there. But, like, you know, my point really is for the people who think a signature variety is a must, what do you do if you're someone like Minnesota? It's too early. You know, it's, way too early. it's way too early. Even and there, too there's early. so many good grapes that they've got still that haven't really been explored that I, I think it's way too early. And of course, I'm not a big fan of the idea anyway, so I want to bitch slap whoever wants to do that to begin with. All right. So let's, uh, I think we've beaten this to death a little bit. Um, and we unfortunately agree, except for Traminette. So, um, so when we get back from this word from our sponsors, um, our friend Todd Traskos from VTY Media is going to be joining us. He's also the news editor of the Cork Report, and uh, he has some headlines he wants to bring up and talk to us. But um, we'll talk to you right well, after this. Hey, guys, it's Len. Sorry to interrupt the show, but I wanted to let you know about my wine club, the Cork Club. I've partnered with the fine folks at The Cellar Door in Ithaca, New York, to bring the best and most interesting wine from the East Coast and Midwest straight to your door. Every month, I pick two wines that never exceed $60 total before shipping. These aren't bin wines or mass-produced factory wine garbage. These are real wines made by real people. These are the wines I'm drinking myself and the ones I'm most excited about, from producers you're probably not going to get your hands on anywhere else. Get a taste of what the rest of North America has to offer. Deliver straight to your door. To learn more and see previous selections, visit thecorkreport.us and click Wine Club at the top of the page. And we're back. 
and we've got Todd Trask with news and headlines. Thank you, guys. Good to good to be talking to you. Welcome, sir. Yeah, man. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, so I've got. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves before you dive in yourself before you dive in with the headlines? Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm just this. I'm an overachieving wine nerd that lives up in the mountains in Vermont, um, and has uh, managed to cross paths with you guys you poor numerous times over the years. You poor bastard. Yeah, and I've, I've managed to survive it and somehow still uh, come back for more. Anyways, uh, I, you know, I've been keeping my eye on what's going on up in the North Country for a while here after having been a, you know, a wine consumer for a long time and was getting fascinated first by the, the culture of Vermont's uh, food and wine scene in general being pretty uh, small but fairly sophisticated. And then the fact that things started growing and being made up in this uh, neighborhood further piqued my interest. And I think that's how we crossed paths, uh, I think, for each of us in you know different instances. And uh, so I appreciate the chance to come and talk to you guys. Well, we really appreciate it. And to do, some, uh, so do some work with you. And... <laughs> yes thank you sir may i have another no i mean the only thing i would only thing i would add to that is i think you sell yourself short i think that the vermont industry um is lucky to have you and they should give you more props than they already are and um i'm hoping we see that happen over over time and also for those of you who are out there uh, Todd is one hell of a home winemaker. He's got quite a uh, quite a setup in his house. Um, he's a true garagist because his winery is his garage, or I guess it's a barn. So you're a barnarist. Yeah, it's, it's more like a barn. <laughs> yeah. And he's got. He probably has the smallest vineyard, and he also has the smallest vineyard that I know of on the East Coast. Because it's still freaking <laughs> What's that like? One. Twelve vines. Nah, it's more like 150 or so, oh. and I got to get my pruning done. I have to prune late here because the the place where we've got is it's well partly the glacier, but also it's just we uh, we're on a slope that gets a lot of sun, and so all of a sudden you know things happen really fast, and we even pop out uh, sometimes earlier than the Champlain Valley. So I got to prune as late as possible to get that like two week delay in bud break and to hope to get past the frosts. So, but that's not why I'm here to talk about what's going on in my little plot. No, you're here to tell us some, some North American wine news. So uh, what's your first headline for us today? Well, you know, it's been fun looking at the, the news and aggregating it for the cork report. Um, and then the New York cork report before when we were focused mostly on New York wines. Because uh, it, there's tons of fascinating stories that go around around the country that are not in California, Oregon, Washington. And a lot of it is about the, the development of new wine areas and the growing pains or the, uh, you know, adventures or uh, eureka moments that those areas have. And uh, one of the things that's come up frequently is the uh, components of the wine being made in these non-traditional areas. 
And we all think of wine as being something that's grown in a place and then made in that place and sold and drunk in that place at the very least. But there are a lot of new areas that want to lean on potentially on the ability to bring in fruit from other areas in order to kind of bump up their, their uh, offerings or at least mitigate sure. against problem years. But there was a recent uh, court case in Minnesota because there were a couple of wineries that were essentially suing to get beyond the 51% minimum local fruit requirement in order to maintain a farm winery as opposed to having to go and get a manufacturer's license that uh, would allow you to make wine with fruit from anywhere, but then that changed your ability to sell, either distribute directly or to uh, sell through tasting room. And uh, I know that we've talked about this before in the past in terms of, you know, what is what really makes a new wine region and what uh, what's right in terms of the wine that's being made there. And uh, I have to say, I was pretty shocked in a way that people would be pushing at all to try and uh, push the the farm winery license beyond a minimum of just over 51% local fruit, because otherwise it did does it it's yeah really which is already a painfully low number yeah i mean that's not that's that's pretty generous from my perspective no no that's the point at which you become a winery yeah that's where that's where you become a winery and not a farm winery there's there's no question in my mind that that's over the limit yeah so that that 51 todd that is purely grapes in the winery it doesn't have anything to do with minnesota labeling like on an individual wine right no it's it has to do with the amount of uh so fifty-one percent of the production grapes that are processed. I mean, I think sometimes it's get, grapes that are processed. People get a little confused because they think it's about blending. Um, you know, this this wine may be seventy-five percent local grapes and twenty percent grapes from someplace else. Which, frankly, from as a winemaker, from a winemaker's perspective, I've played around with that a little bit, and I'm not convinced that the cold climate grapes and grapes from elsewhere really blend together very well it, it really muddies the water and you lose you lose some intrinsic qualities by doing that so take you know taking that out of the the equation i understand from a business model perspective why you might want to have the ability to use raw materials from elsewhere and the in this case the people filing the suit were saying well beer doesn't have to you know adhere to any locality requirements they can take stuff from anywhere and make um, make whatever they want with it, but beer and wine are different. They're different animals. I mean, I think we all accept that, and that the, the prejudice. Yeah. On- well, 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 New York State. Yeah. What are you saying there, Carlo? Well, well I, know, I was going to say in New York State is that the uh, the farm farm breweries have to have a minimum of locally produced or New York State produced product in them. Uh, but what you're talking about in Minnesota, uh, as you were as you were saying earlier, is that this isn't so much about how many grapes are in each wine. It's that they're taking in uh, almost 50% of their grapes are not uh, Minnesota grapes. They're grapes from elsewhere. And at that point, you're not a farm winery anymore if you're not using mostly 
Minnesota Greats, and uh, I think that they are trying to bastardize the uh, the concept of the farm winery and, and what it means everywhere else. Yeah, I would agree, and actually, I I got well. I think I think the differences with Minnesota is that. Yeah, go ahead. Go oh, ahead I was Tom. just going to say that you know I I the 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 thing is is that I'm confused about why if you're going to make a legal uh, action and you're going to try and have a regulation changed, why they would have tried to loosen the farm winery designation to allow for more foreign grapes, which is kind of antithetical to the very concept, um, as opposed to opening up the manufacturer's license so that they could sell in self-distribution or in a tasting room. That would actually make more sense right because that that's the big issue right because that's the, that's the issue with the manufacturing license in minnesota is if you have that you can buy fruit and juice from wherever you want but you can't have a tasting right. room right exactly exactly so it's about yeah, so that's, that's your model if your model is selling out of your tasting room and x number of accounts if you switch over to the winery license it switches up how you're able to distribute your product yeah, I mean, I think it's also a little dis- disappointing that they would sue for this as opposed to taking a legislative approach, approach yeah. to it. I, right, and saying, okay, we got a tasting room for our winery license that we need to switch over to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess there was and also there was the interstate commerce clause uh, portion, too, that the judge didn't even rule on because I think it was outside the – the scope of the brief, so to speak. Right. The, the idea is that there are yeah. certain protections within a farm winery. When you jump over to a winery license, there are some things you are allowed to do and there are other things you're not allowed to do. And there's it's also a, a bigger bond that you have to um, have on your winery. Usually it jumps from around $1,500 to about $10,000 bond. And there are a couple of other things. So you carry a little bit more liability. So it's a little bit more expensive not a little bit. In some cases, it's a lot more expensive to have a winery license as opposed to a farm winery license. But um, I agree. I think there's no reason why they couldn't have just said, hey, how about we change up the winery license uh, uh, for our state? And I don't know if that incurs TTV issues that also have to be taken under consideration, which also may make it really difficult, which is why they may have been pushing the, the, the farm winery thing a little harder. Yeah, I'm guessing we haven't heard the end of this, but uh, I think we're all in the same uh, same side of the page here. So now you, Carla, you brought up, uh, that some, yeah, some of the New York state requirements to have it be New York state products. So, and that's one of the second, the other stories that I was thinking about is I saw that, uh, governor Como was, uh, setting up, I guess it's next month, a big, uh, kind of taste of New York type fundraiser, for his campaign, leaning into the uh, the angle that he, you know he's done a lot to support the expansion of craft fermentation and spirits in the state, which I, I think is pretty impressive. As somebody that grew up in upstate New York under the previous Governor Cuomo, I'm you know, and this wasn't even an imagination that you could have something like this. The fact that he's doing this is great, but he's kind of taking it top tier with a you know $1000 uh, an entry ticket for uh, for this fundraiser $25,000 if you want to get the 
10 pack VIP seats. Um, he's definitely going all in on this and not being shy about it. As somebody who pays New York taxes, I'm kind of curious about what you think, Carlo. Actually, both of you guys. Well, I certainly wish I were invited. I can't lie, but I don't have the money to attend. So that's uh, that goes without saying. Uh, he uh, led it asked me earlier if we had been invited to participate. And I can only imagine that my co-owner, Dominique, might have gotten that uh, email or that letter and thrown it out immediately. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it certainly see, uh, look, you can't say enough about Cuomo if you are any kind of craft beverage manufacturer in this state. He has uh, helped completely turn around the industry from when I got into it 11 years ago. So uh, massive kudos to what he's performed uh, since taking office. I, I know if you're a teacher or if you're uh, in a number of other fields, you might not feel the same way, but uh, go, go Cuomo. But this is obviously something different. This is basically a, a fundraiser uh, disguised in uh, you know sheep's clothing with um, uh, with uh, craft beverages as the, uh, the uh, clever ruse as they would say. And, um, you know, hey, hats off to him. He's still promoting uh, craft beverages from New York State, but um, uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to be in a $25,000 tasting. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have anything else to add to that. Well, we'll see what, uh, how it goes. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see how it goes. I'm actually curious if we'll see a list of who pours because um, we all know that there's a lot of big money coming from non-New York producers. So we'll see who pours and who who was invited, maybe. Well, yeah, it was pretty clear that uh, Anheuser-Busch also was a big donor. Yeah. So. so I'm curious to see what we might learn after the fact. Yeah, I agree. So the last thing I wanted to bring up in terms of uh, headlines, and this one was from out in the Midwest, but I think it, it's just indicative of some stuff that we've covered in the last uh, year and a half, maybe more. In terms of the NIMBY issue with wineries, the not in my backyard, absolutely from uh, stuff that's been happening in Lo- in Long Island, with in Southhold Town, absolutely to other places where you know wineries are. You know, we're talking about you know thirty years ago there were a few hundred wineries in the country, and now there are several thousand wineries. So they're they're naturally going to be expanding into places that they hadn't been before, bumping up against. Uh, human settlements, much like, you know, wild animals <laughs> in the <laughs> suburbs. And uh, so, the, the, you know, the question is, you know, how, how do these expansions of the wine industry fit in with local communities? I mean, in my perspective, given that wine has been pretty much indicative or, or, associated with the rise of human culture from the very beginning, I find it interesting that there are places that um, are ultra hypersensitive to having wine being grown and made in their neighborhood such that, you know, local zoning can be uh, maybe interpreted in such a way as to make it harder for those people to potentially do business or, or there's just the uh, in this article that will be in the in the next you know release of the news, people saying even before the wineries even started, oh my God, people are going to get killed on this road because kids are riding their bikes wearing black in the dark, and you know what's going to happen to them? It's just, and I just my yeah. my eyes can't roll hard enough um, 
over that kind of an assertion. No, I mean, I, the, I think I think the sad but true fact is that you're right about you know wine's place in culture since the beginning. But the the problem is that nimbyism overrules all logic. Um, these people who are the hardcore nimbies are willing to say anything just to not have this happen in their neighborhood. You know, the woman, I'm not going to mention the name, but the woman that's quoted in the story, um, here's the quote. Somebody's going to get killed because of the drinking going on at the winery. As an aside, the winery is not even open. We don't know what, what business model they're going to follow. Maybe they won't even have buy the glass. Maybe it's just tastings and then you have to leave. And it'll come back on you goes, you guys. Um, the woman was saying this to the board members. Anybody that gets killed, it'll all fall back on you because you've been notified. Again, the winery hasn't even opened its doors. Hasn't been built yet. Hasn't even been built yet. So these people, they're willing to say and do anything to scare these governing bodies into denying waivers. You know, it's amazing to me. And it's so frustrating. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I can tell you all kinds of stories. Uh, having lived upstate now for uh, quite a while, I mean, there was one town that had two very successful bars, but the locals didn't want them. So they eventually closed them down for very, very minor infractions. And basically, they didn't want restaurants or bars in their town, and that's how they got rid of them. So this kind of stuff has been going on for a while. I can tell you that when we applied for uh, our local zoning, uh, we actually had one woman who showed up with a giant breathing apparatus uh, trying to say no uh they're they're gonna they're gonna admit all kinds of uh toxins into the air and uh, i'm going to die because i have a breathing problem anyway so this kind of stuff happens all the time and of course len you and i both know that uh, their biggest worries are places uh look there are very famous or should i should say infamous wineries uh that host wild parties that operate like giant bacchanalia and there are other ones around the state i mean i'm not gonna sit here and try to tell people how to run their business, but there are certainly places that uh, encourage uh, a kind of bacchanal that goes on. And if you're one of these places in upstate New York, you want to make sure that the place that's going to open up across the street is going to be a, a reputable place as opposed to one of those. Now, of course, we all know what happened in Southhold with um, – uh, with those guys, and I thought that was complete crap. He was running a high-end uh, boutique winery, and, and they shut him down anyway like he was running Vineyard 48. I, I don't get it. Um, but the, it happens all the time, and it's happened with other businesses. I saw a poor guy wanted to have a, a car dealership, and they found 20 different reasons why he couldn't have a car dealership because they didn't want a car dealership near their houses. So this kind of stuff happens upstate all the time, and in the rural parts of the state, um, you just uh, – but it's, it's, it's NIMBY, and it's it, – it, is what it is, and it is everywhere in every state. Well, you know what? Let's let's take a little different tack on this. So, as a winery owner, you know, do you have a good relationship with your neighbors? Have there been any? Has there been any pushback on what you're doing? I mean, I know your your property is kind of insulated. I have to say, 
Yeah, that's a good question. Originally, there was some real suspicion that, uh, you know, we were going to be operating basically a nightclub uh, at a farm location. Uh, there's no question about it. And, um, uh, you know, it's taken uh, quite a while for people to understand uh, what we were uh, all about. And now we're, we're really kind of part of the farming community. And it's taken a while for those suspicions to abet. More often than not, it happens when you're an outsider and you're like, ah, I found my dream farm and now we're going to do that as opposed to if you're a local and they kind of know you and know what you're about long before you step into the gate but it's uh it's certainly something that there's there's you are convicted before you're proven innocent in a lot of these cases and uh you, you really need to prove yourself now we have a good relationship with uh with the folks but it, it took a while to, to build that yeah i mean was it just a matter of operating as a good citizen for them to come around or did you do certain things to convince them you know did you do outreach did you uh yeah, you, know, you know we, we took so part in the community i mean we were doing something like seven farmers markets a week during the summer and that's how you start to get involved in the community that's how you get to meet people because we were not from the area i think that for example uh some of the other businesses that started here where people were already in the area and started something they had a little easier time of it but we needed to go out there and prove ourselves and make contacts um there were uh, it was very interesting to me because there were a number of agricultural business owners they were actually the most friendly first because they saw uh what we could bring to the table in terms of tourism and agriculture and, and everything else. Um, and it's some of the people who have a vacation home or who have uh, children who are living not far from you, and they're the ones that are the most suspicious or the most worried about how you're going to affect their lives. Right. No, I mean, it's it's funny. I, I you know, you mentioned South of Farm and Cellar. I'm, I consider Regan and Carrie, you know, personal friends as well as people who make wine that I'm interested in and enjoy drinking. So I was very personally tied to their saga. I found it very frustrating. Um, but it's really hard to, under, you know, I have kids. Would I want a certain brand of winery to open up next door? No, I probably wouldn't. But I would like to think that I would at least give that person a chance to come speak to me or I would go speak to them. I'd say, hey, I know you're trying to do this, you know, let me find out what you're all about before I go and get a lawyer or go to the, the town government. You know, it's at some point it's just about being a decent person. <laughs> well, I mean, we also had an issue like that in the Hudson Valley where Rivendell, which was a very well-known uh, winery, tried to move. And I can't lie, they did some things incorrectly. Um and didn't do their paperwork properly or assiduously enough. And when it came time to the zoning boards, the zoning board said, look, this is a bad move. Uh, we think the traffic pattern is not good for where you're trying to go in. It's already a busy traffic area, and you're going to have a huge egress, and it's really not going to work. Uh, you should have come to us first, and maybe we could have helped you with something else. Um, so these things, they happen. Um but it's, it's, it's never easy, and especially when you're working with planning boards, man, you really need to uh, do your best to, to work with those people because uh, they, can, they can stop almost anything in their tracks when they decide to. Yeah, and I'll make a caveat here. As somebody that's on my local planning commission and is currently writing the zoning bylaws for the town, rewriting the zoning bylaws for the town, there's certain stuff that we have to adhere to, and there are certain things we try to take into account when we're putting these things together with the idea for growth and for 
creating opportunity. But, you know, once it's written, then it becomes the law and it has to be adhered to. And so, you know, when people are wanting to come into an area with a winery, they got to know what the framework is that they're dealing with. And if it doesn't fit for them, be ready to lobby for for change. And it, it, it also depends on what, what that town wants. I mean, uh, I've seen towns that have wanted to get rid of other businesses so that they could encourage uh, officers. They wanted things like uh, lawyers, dentists, real estate offices. They didn't want retail operations. They didn't want bars and restaurants, etc. So it's about what your town is looking for as well. You can't always fight City Hall. You have to be smart about it as well as, you know, before you buy a piece of property, you really need to go and, and find out what the, the, uh, the uh, either the restrictions or the the, the, the temperature is in the room before you go into these things. Yeah, precisely. Well, thanks. That's actually, that's great feedback based on the, uh, the, the, the news of the week or the last couple of weeks. And hopefully uh, we'll find some more interesting stuff to bring to you in the future. Yeah. Thanks Todd. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm not sure when we're going to publish this podcast, but I'm hoping tomorrow hint, hint Todd will have, the rest of the news that's worth knowing about um, up on the site. So uh, take a look at that if you didn't see it. And um, I guess that's it. So with that, we're going to wrap up this first episode of the Core Corporate Podcast. Uh, Carlo, thank you, sir. And go fuck yourself. And Todd, <laughs> thank you very much, my friend. And I'm sure I'll talk to you both tomorrow. And uh, have a good one, everybody. Cheers, Shrek. Cheers. Cheers.